Hey, South Bend City Church Digital Fam, Mariah Keener here. Ignore the audio quality of this intro. I'm currently on vacation in Pennsylvania visiting family, sitting in my childhood bedroom, recording this on like seven-year-old iPhone headphones. So bear with me, but I couldn't miss the opportunity to introduce the person that you're going to hear from today. He actually probably needs no introduction. Today we get to hear from Ryan Yazel, our City Connection Pastor. He does so many things for our community here at South Bend City Church, from student tables to how to get into the community and how to partner with nonprofits. He is so wise and he loves the city so well. Today we start our series on one of our mantras, Everyone an Icon. There are a few people that I know that are more equipped to share about this mantra and to challenge us in this mantra than Ryan. Ryan is incredibly good at thinking of really great, creative, tangible ways to treat people with honor and dignity and respect. He's actually going to take us into a different facet of everyone an icon, something that we might not have thought about before. So I'm not going to steal his thunder, but I wanted to make sure that we all took a minute to thank and welcome Ryan Yeasel for today's episode of the podcast. Thanks, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here with you and get to chat with you guys this morning. It's kind of funny to me that uh, we're now like seven weeks into our lead pastor, Jason's sabbatical. So if you've been here for a couple of months, uh, you've not even gotten to meet him. Uh, he's really great. Uh, and we, we miss his wisdom a lot. Um, but one of the great things is, is no matter who is here teaching on stage or who is here around leading, uh, or even like years from now when none of us are here, we still are South Bend City Church uh, because of who we are and because of the values that hold us together, right? We are South Bend City Church, not because of any individual, but we are South Bend City Church uh, because we are guided forward by our calling uh, to be a Jesus-centered community of grace and peace for our city and the world. This holds us together. And we're held together by our mantras. Our mantras are these kind of like simple statements that, that tell us the kind of people we believe God wants us to be. Uh, you see the illustrations over here. If you're new, these may be new to you, and you may have been wondering why we have strange gold pictures on the wall. Uh, these are illustrations of our mantras. So the one on the top left represents our mantra, sushi, not fish stew which basically gets at the idea of like a piece of sushi. If you have like a nice piece of fish, uh, you don't need a lot of other things to like go with it and gussy it up, right? Like good things are good to be simple uh, and there's goodness in simplicity in life. Uh, the, going counterclockwise, the one below that, uh, the hands, we say practices, not performances. This one is like really meaningful to me and my history because uh, it just basically tells us uh, nobody's perfect. Right? And it, it sounds so obvious, but we come to church and so many times we feel like we have to have it all together by the time we come to church or be a part of things. None of us is perfect. And the important thing is we come here as we are and we continue to take steps and walk forward together in these practices that are meaningful for us. Uh, the bottom right one is fields, not factories. And basically we're just saying like people aren't widgets, Right. It's not like you can run us all through the same system and then it, we, we all come out the exact same and need the exact same things, right? We're not a factory. Every single person like plants in a field starts in different places with different conditions and needing different things. And we all might be growing in different directions as we grow forward together. And there's something also beautiful about seasons, right? That things are always changing and always different. And we embrace that here. And finally, in the top right, we have everyone an icon, 
And icon's a weird word outside of religion, but it, it basically means that we recognize that the goodness of God is put into each and every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've done, the goodness of God is inside of us. And so we can consider that about ourselves. We can consider about that about the people that are difficult in our lives for us to get along with. And we can consider that about people that are across the aisle from us politically or otherwise, right? That we see the goodness of God in people. I like those, right? These are the things that hold us together. And I think that they're beautiful. Uh, Which led to the surprise when I was talking to my oldest daughter, uh, who's 15. We're having conversations. She's like, yeah, I like all of our mantras at church except one of them. And I was like, it's sushi, right? Because fish is gross, (laughs) right? It should be not sushi, not fish stew, just not fish. Like that would, that would be it for me. Uh, she's like, no, no, it's not sushi, not fish stew. The one, the one I struggle with uh, that I don't really like is everyone an icon. I was like, what? Like, don't post that on Instagram, all right? <laughs> like, I'm over here raising a bigot, I guess. Uh, how can you not like everyone an icon? It's beautiful. She's like, well, I just don't like going around pretending like everybody's good when there's clearly a lot of evil in the world. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's deep. She's right. It's hard for us to talk about seeing the good in people when there is such evil and difficulty that's also out there. And that's the reality of the world that we're living in right now. The world as it has been, that's the reality that our teens are looking at and asking questions about, right? We're talking about everyone an icon when we're standing in a time where there's a war going on in Ukraine right now and people are being tortured and slaughtered at the whims of a madman dictator, right? We're living in a world where in the last month we had a racist massacre of people in a grocery store in Buffalo because of one man's evil ideology. We had the shooting of children at their elementary school and the just pure evil that that is, let alone all of the atrocities that have happened throughout history. So what does everyone an icon, if we're going to talk about it, what does everyone an icon have to say about that reality, about that kind of evil? And it's not just Callie with the good questions. So I help organize our student tables here for our 6th through 12th graders. Guys, there are some brilliant, thoughtful kids uh, in this church community that are just asking really good questions. Also, a shout out to our amazing mentors. We have a mentor team of seven adult mentors that have led us through this school year. They're amazing. Can we give a round of thanks for them? We're heading into the summer. We're going to have some fun summer activities for students. Uh, if you're interested in being a mentor for next fall, I'd love to talk to you about that. So find me afterwards and we can talk more about what that might look like. But as we're talking to teens uh, in this church, the conversation that comes up over and over again as they're asking their questions and sharing and processing is this. They say something like, you know, like I like Jesus, like I like our church and I like our mantras, most of them, right? Like I like these things. But what difference does any of this make in the real world? What difference does it make? And what they're seeing is they're saying, like, in the world we're looking at, they'll say things like, everyone I know, religious or non-religious or whatever, believes that they should be kind to others. So how is this any different than that? 
right? It's hard to come across somebody in life that would say like, yeah, I don't think we need to be kind to others or I don't think we need to try to be kinder. Kind of everybody's doing that. So is that, is that just what we're talking about with everyone in Icon? Or is there something more to it than just simply the thing that all of us are trying to do is walk through life and not be a jerk and be kind to others? I haven't stopped thinking about that question. What difference does this make? What difference does any of this make? We're all spending our time being a part of it. There's other things you could be doing this morning. Sleeping would have been great. But we choose to be here because we believe there's something about it that makes a difference. So what difference does it make? What difference does Jesus make? What difference does everyone in Icon make? And I think if it makes a difference, we would see it showing up and seeing people who buy into this and believe and hold on to this everyone in Icon thinking whose actions and behavior looks different, just looks different, unusual, quirky, weird, than we would just expect to see from even people trying to be kind, right? That's the kind of difference I would expect to see. So as we dive into this a little bit, I want to start by looking at a couple of examples of just that, people acting strangely. The first is from the story in Acts chapter 16. It's a story of Paul, the apostle, a follower of Jesus, and actually his friend Silas and some others. And they were arrested and they were thrown into prison in Philippi, um, the city from which uh, we get the letter to the Philippians, right? They're thrown into prison for their faith. They're sitting there in prison. And then one day an earthquake happens. And as this earthquake happens, we're told the doors of the prison are flung open and all of their chains fall off of them. That's some earthquake, right? That, like, the reality is this, is that we know that earthquakes are these, like, scientific, you know, happenings. Is it geological or meteorological? I don't know what it is. Like, it's something scientific-y, right? Uh, earthquakes are that. But for them, the idea of an earthquake was just, like, God is doing something crazy right now, right? And so we have this story where Paul and his friends are sitting in prison for their faith, and then God does something crazy, and all their chains fall off of them, and the doors get flung open, and God has brought about their freedom, Oh my goodness, from the midst of the depths of despair to the opportunity for freedom right before them. And as they go to leave, they end up realizing that the jailer is there and the jailer knows that the jailer will be put to death for allowing the escape of the inmates. So the jailer goes to take his own life because the jailer realizes they're going to torture him and kill him anyway in a more shameful way if he doesn't take his own life. So he's going to save face by taking his own life. Paul and Silas and the friends, they see this. And so they go to him and they say, stop, we will stay. We will stay here in jail. We will not leave because our freedom is not worth you losing your life. Our goodness is not worth you losing yours. They lost their freedom to save the life of their oppressor. That's crazy. That's the kind of thing I don't know that I think of when I think of everyone in Icon. Right? Now, I love this story. It's beautiful. And like, it works out great because the next day God like sends people to release him anyway and everything's fine. Uh, So another story that's like it. And this happened in 1569. This is a true story of a man named Dirk Willems. Dirk was also a person of faith living his life. uh, And as a result of his faith beliefs, which differed from the community of faith beliefs around him, he also, like Paul, was thrown into prison. And when Dirk was in prison, uh, he also experienced God assisting, uh, bringing about his freedom. It was made possible 
that Dirk was able to, to string together some rags and climb out the window like all Rapunzel style, right? Um, and, and get out of the prison that he was in. And as he's running away to freedom, which surely was like just an act of grace that he found freedom and goodness for, again from the midst of despair and oppression. As he's running away, he realizes he's being chased by a guard from the prison who realizes he's escaping. The prison guard is chasing him. It's wintertime. They run out across the pond. Uh, Dirk gets across the pond. As the prison guard is chasing him, the ice collapses and he falls into the water. And Dirk makes the conscious choice that his freedom is not worth the life of his oppressor. And he goes back and he rescues the guard and saves his life. Now the guard is very thankful, but nobody else cares. So they recapture Dirk, throw him back into prison, and very shortly after end up burning him at the stake. And what is described as the, one of the most uh, painful uh, ways to be able to be tortured to death. That story doesn't work out as well as the one before it. But both seem crazy to me. People who have the opportunity for goodness presented to them that surely it makes sense to take, but choose not to do that. And I ask myself, why? Why? These aren't simply stories about acting more kindly or looking past our differences with others or difficult people. These are stories of people who refuse to take hold of their own goodness or freedom if it meant death for their oppressor. And I think the reason is because of the deeper view they had of everyone in Icon. And so I want us to take a deeper look at that this morning as well. So we're going to go back to the beginning of where we get this idea from. Genesis chapter 1. This is all review, this part right here, uh, but I think it's good for us. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is in the creation poems. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds and the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. All right. So this kind of language is unusual for us. This is created in the image. Like maybe we would talk about that with regarding our children, you know, like oh, you're a spitting image of your mom or whatever. Like maybe we use that. Uh, but this was actually more common language for them. It was the language of being made in the image of God was actually, and Jason has taught this very well before, uh, was actually um, an idea that was ascribed to kings. Right? And it was ascribed to kings that kings were made in the image of God, and this is the way that they set themselves apart from us common people. Right? It was, it was not an idea just of goodness being put into them. It was an idea of value or worth. Not just goodness, but godness. And that godness was set apart uh, with dignity and worth and value. Right? We saw them up here because they had the image of God in them. And so the radical part of this idea, the radical part of this story is that with God and with Jesus, we recognize that every single one of us has received that goodness of God in us. Not just that goodness, but that Godness. This is a story not just about goodness, it is about worth and dignity and value. In every single human life, there is value. 
Let's fast forward to the teachings of Jesus then in Matthew 5. I do realize that we just spent like nearly an entire year in the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) So forgive me for going back here, but this is really good stuff. And I think we should probably, we could, I could probably teach from Matthew 5 like every week, like of every year. Um, It's, it's good. All right. So Matthew 5, 43 through 47, Jesus is teaching. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? So there's three things I want us to see from this passage. The first is this idea that Jesus kind of says in different ways of like, isn't everyone else already doing that? Right? Like when we talk about trying to be more kind to others, aren't other people, isn't this just what everybody's doing? It's the same question that I'm hearing from the teenagers, right? Like, all right, it's got to be more, there's got to be something more to this than just trying to be kind to the people that we bump into at the grocery store or at school or on the street, right? There's got to be something more than just putting up with the annoying person that lives in our house or lives next door or whatever. Like, aren't these other people already doing it? And not just these other people, but it uses examples of tax collectors and pagans, right? Aren't these, the people that you think are like farthest away from faith, like they're even doing these things. So like, isn't there something different about how we understand the goodness of God in every single person that should make a difference, right? Surely there's got to be something different is what Jesus is saying. The second thing I want to know this is the talk about enemies here, right? The talk about enemies. When he's talking about enemies, who are the enemies of the people of Israel? He's talking about the Romans. He's talking about the foreign oppressors. He's talked about this military, this army that has come into their land, that has taken over their homes, that has taken over their neighborhoods, that has taken over their region, that has set new laws, that has uh, started charging them taxes where they don't get to make decisions about it, who has started to throw them in jail and oppress them if they don't like the things that you do. And I feel like I've heard this story before where people tend to get frustrated if they have to pay lots of taxes and don't get to make decisions for it, right? This whole like taxation without representation thing, right? This is a very frustrating situation for them that goes far and beyond just our normal ideas of enemies. These were talking about their oppressors. I think of my enemies and I think of people who are hard to get along with, right? People that I might argue with on Facebook or something. But we were talking about people that were oppressing them What this is, is think of the thing that you most want in life, the thing that you most feel like you need to keep going, the thing that you most feel like you need to survive. What is that deepest desire of your heart? And then think of the person in life that is most standing in the way of that. The person that is the very obstacle to that thing that you long for. The person who, if they would just not be there or if they would change, you would be able to have that thing you need. That is what we're talking about. Who are the people that are standing in the way of the dreams that we dream? Who is that for you? Who are the people that are standing in the way of the dreams that you dream? Maybe it's the boss that's been resisting your promotion at work, making it so that you can't advance 
making it so that you stay in a place that's below what you know that you're capable of or you're not able to, to make more money to meet the needs of your family because someone's standing in your way. Maybe it's a neighbor that continually robs you of your peace through their behaviors and the things that they do. Maybe it's a family member that has hurt or continues to hurt you. Maybe it's a politician that fights against your ability to live a good life. Who are our enemies? Who are the people that are the ones standing against the things that we dream for? That's who he's talking about here. The third thing I want us to know is Jesus uses this language of love and hate. And when we hear language of love and hate, we think about thinking positively or negatively about people. But we in 20th century, 20th, 21st century, whenever we are, we in America, we are an individualist society, right? Our society and Western thought thinks about how things affect each of us as individuals, what are our individual ideals and feelings and rights and freedoms. This society in the first century world was a collectivist society. They thought more about how things affected the groups and what group dynamics were like, what the, how they saw themselves as family, how they saw themselves as kinfolk, how they saw themselves as nationality, how they saw themselves as community. Those were the questions that they were asking. So when you see these ideas of love and hate, it is not just about personal feelings for or against somebody. The question at stake here is, are they included in your circle or not? People that you love are people that you include in the dreams that you dream. People that you hate are people that you exclude from them. You resist them. You shun them. You leave them on the outside of the goodness you dream of. This week I was taken back by an article uh, about South Bend schools that's shown up in our community. If any of you are familiar with our school system, um, I'm, I, I'm personally trying to be a big advocate for our schools. Our schools have had a difficult time for years. Right? And our schools have had a difficult time because we as a city have had a difficult time. Right? We as a city have been through lots of trauma and we experience levels of, levels of poverty and levels of difficulty and levels of challenge and levels of tension in our relationships. Uh, we have segregated neighborhoods. We have all these problems as a city which have led to also our schools having to carry the weight of those and experience some of those problems. Right? So in the midst of this problem of us asking the questions, how can we improve our schools? How can we step forward for all the kids in our community who deserve a right to a good education and to be cared for and to be loved? How can we improve things? One of the solutions that has come forward uh, is from Clay Township, which is a township on the north side of town. Uh, and Clay Township is a great township, and it tends to be a little bit wealthier than uh, the rest of the townships more towards the city's core, right? In Clay Township, uh, there are some people that have risen up that have said, we should just pull our whole township out of South Bend schools because if we pull out of the rest of the city and out of the rest of South Bend schools, then we can have our own schools and we can make nice schools. And the reality is they probably can do that because the highest correlation we've found between school performance, uh, schools and school performance, is the wealth of the community of the districts that they're in. Right? So literally pulling out probably would do that. But I don't think that they're actually fixing anything. They're not actually improving the educational levels for the rest of the kids in the community. It's not actually solving the problem. All it is doing is dreaming a dream of goodness that leaves other people behind. Dreaming a dream of goodness for some 
that comes, the victory, the goodness comes at the exclusion of others. It's not actually fixing the problem. But that's what we're talking about with love. Love is about the dreams of goodness that we dream. And when we think of our enemies, when we think about the people that stand in the way of our dreams, do we dream dreams that if they would come true would include, would include those people that currently stand in the way of them? Are we able to include them in our dreams for goodness for both us and for them? There's one final example that's been sitting with me. Um, and it comes uh, from a trip that I was able to go on recently. Actually, Karen Grant, our children's director, and I uh, got to go on this trip through the American South as a civil rights learning trip uh, with the Telos group. And it actually uh, was a kind of a, a pilot run because we're going to, to put it out there to be able to take a group from the rest of our church here that's going to come up in January or February. Um, we'll also be taking uh, groups on a trip to Israel-Palestine with the Telos group uh, to learn about peacemaking and the intractable conflict there uh, and the ways that we can understand what it means to be peacemakers better in our world. That trip's coming up in November, and more information will be coming out, out about that next week. But Karen and I were able to go uh, several months ago now um, on this trip through the American South. And on this trip, we, became, we came face-to-face uh, no other way to say it, with a lot of evil that has and does take place in our country as we learned about the story of our country's past and present. Um, we started off in New Orleans. In New Orleans, uh, we started off at the Whitney Plantation here. Uh, this looks like we maybe up north picture plantations, a beautiful place with nice tre- shady trees and nice big old houses. Um, and the reality is that many of the plantations of the south Uh, look like this and uh, use themselves as places of celebration now for nice fancy weddings if you want some places decorated nice. But we know the history of plantations is actually more sinister and more evil than that, right? We know that at these plantations and the Whitney Plantation tells a story. We know that uh, people went over and kidnapped African people out of their homes and out of their cities and out of their villages. And they, after they kidnapped them, they brought them across the Atlantic Ocean to our country to be tortured and enslaved in conditions that were unimaginable. We see uh, here is one of the houses uh, where the enslaved people uh, were packed into in the overly, uh, overly hot conditions of the South. Uh, and this uh, statues that were there just help us to remember um, just the, the human nature of everything, even with children who were enslaved. The lifespan of those who were enslaved and worked in the field would drop to seven years to seven years for these people. Uh, There's no other word to describe other than evil and horrific. Uh, We also know that slavery was eventually abolished. Uh, Slavery was abolished. Actually, this is June, June 19th. We celebrate Juneteenth, which is a celebration of the abolition of slavery in the United States. Uh, And hopefully, uh, we'll be able to have a big celebration as a city as we remember the goodness involved in that. But as we know, that didn't fix everything. In fact, it actually didn't abolish all slavery because under the 13th Amendment, slavery is still legal today uh, for those who have been convicted of crimes, right? So it just shifted a little bit, and yet the evil continues. 
So uh, as soon as this happened, um, it just lifted to, they still needed to find enslaved people to force them to work on their plantation because that's how they, they made money and that was their economy. So they would find excuses to throw people in jail so they could send them back out to the cotton fields or otherwise to do work for them, to go right back into the same system that was now outlawed, but just using convictions as the way to cover that. Right? So they made up bogus laws. There was a law uh, about vagrancy, and they would say that if you were a black person walking around uh, when slavery is no longer illegal, and you were walking around, and if you could not have your papers on you to prove that you were currently employed at the moment, you would be arrested for being an unemployed vagrant, and then you would be sent to be enslaved back on the plantations again. Right? Just because we pass the laws didn't fix the system, and there's no other way to describe this but to say that it's evil. Just moving on. Uh, as we move forward, we were able to go to Jackson and then Montgomery. This is the National Lynching Memorial. On each of those pillars that you see there, those uh, metal pillars, is a county in the United States, and on it is inscribed the names of people that were lynched, that were killed uh, outside of the judicial process, outside of the system, they were killed by people. Something, some for something as simple as somebody believed they, they looked at somebody the wrong way or, uh, or they annoyed somebody. And they were killed for it. Hung, shot, physically, uh, just with uh, physical abuse. Each of these represents that. The number of names is staggering. As it goes, as you walk around the four sides of this memorial, the floor slants downward. So as you walk through, uh, it has the effect of feeling like the memorials are being raised above you, um, like bodies going up into a tree. It's evil. And it was us. It is us. This is our story. And many of the people who did this, most of the people who did this, never faced any consequences for it. Because some of them were the law. Some of the people who did it, uh, many who did it were friends with the law. And if they actually did get arrested and sent to trial for it, the trial was made up of jury of their peers. Which at that time, well at all times, like the, the, the jury pool is made up of registered voters. Well, at that time, there was all sorts of laws that made it difficult for people to become registered to vote. And so uh, they made it difficult for people of color, actually. People of color actually had to go and convince the, law, or the, the county clerk in their county that they should be registered. But there was laws on the book that said you had to show a competence uh, and intelligence and an understanding the process. So the clerks would make up all these things on the spot, like you had to recite the entire constitution from memory or things like that, to show that you are worthy of voting. Obviously, just in an effort to suppress the vote, which also led to people not having representation, and it led to juries that were also not representative of the people, which led to atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. This is our country. This is our story. Next one. This is the home of Medgar Evers, who was a leader in the NAACP working on integration and working on voting rights, this very thing we're talking about. A leader who was out there trying to make progress and make a difference until he was assassinated and killed right there in that carport in front of his home, in front of his family, 
This was 1963. This is not ancient history. We got to talk with his daughter, Rena, who is fantastic. And the thing that struck me most about her, besides her uh, joyful wisdom, is she's young and beautiful still. Like, in my mind, these are ancient history things. She was not a baby when she witnessed her father's death. And yet here she is. Do you know uh, Ruby Bridges, the, the little girl that you've seen in pictures integrating the schools in Mississippi? Do you know she's only 67 right now? She's all, this is not ancient history. This is our story. This is the evil that we still face in this country. And actually, Medgar Evers was assassinated, right? Uh, because of getting a jury that would actually represent fairness and justice. Do you know when the person who assassinated him was actually convicted? Does anybody know when, when that conviction happened? 1994. It was not until 1994, 30 years after the assassination, that anything happened. There's evil in that. And then finally, this is the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. The movement kept rising to say, this isn't right, we've got to do something about it. And the movement came for voting rights as one of the, uh, the first changes that needed to take place to give people the right to easily register to vote without obstacles. And at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, there was a series of marches. The first one, people joined hands and peacefully marched across the bridge, just saying that they needed to be able to have the same rights as everyone else. And as they did, they were confronted uh, by the state troopers. And there was such brutality shown that day that the pictures of bloody violence made their way around the world. Around the world, that first march was led by John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, obviously before he was a congressman as well. We have all of this evil. And if ever in our country there was justification, justification for people fighting for their rights, justification for people who had a right to fight, there would be no greater justification than the than our story of racial injustice in our country. There would be no greater justification. And yet, a leader rose up, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was both a leader of the civil rights movement and was a pastor. And Dr. King led in ways that I just frankly can't even comprehend from my, my very privileged vantage point. But Dr. King believed deeply in the words of Jesus and took them seriously. And Dr. King took everyone an icon seriously. So Dr. King dreamed dreams that didn't just include a better future for his community, but a better future for all people, including the racists that stood in his way. Dr. King talked about a beloved community. This idea that there was a future out there where both the victims and the oppressors might share a collective future together that was better for all. Not just better for the victims, not just better for those who are being oppressed, but better for the oppressors themselves. He believed in this beloved community of goodness for everyone. And as a result, he taught nonviolence as a method of resistance. 
Because if the goal was to someday share this beloved community together, to someday share in these dreams of goodness, you couldn't reach those goals. You cannot defeat your enemy with methods that make future peace impossible, right? And so they resisted, but without harming their enemies. And in case you need reminders of what this resistance looked like, the primary method of their resistance was to find ways in which they could be as public as possible while people release their evil upon them so that everyone in the world would see evil and see goodness and that somehow their goodness of nonviolence would save not just themselves in the end, but also save their enemies. This is a beautiful, radical vision of everyone in Icon that I still just can't wrap my mind around. I want to start wrapping up with the words of Dr. King from his Sunday sermon, November 17th, 1957. He actually was sick this day as he preached this sermon. And uh, we'll have some quotes here and, and afterwards. But friends, I encourage you to go Look up this sermon, Loving Your Enemies, on the internet and read it. I think it has got to be the single greatest sermon that anybody has ever written as far as like shaping us in the ways that Jesus makes a difference in the world. Dr. King said this, Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of giving them a recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it. That is the meaning of love. In the final analysis, love is not the sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems, individuals who happen to be caught up in that system you love, but you seek to defeat the system. So what difference does everyone in Icon make? For Paul, for Dirk Willems, for Dr. King, it made all the difference. But what difference does it make for us? What difference does it make for each of us to recognize the value even in those who stand in our way? What difference does it make for us to recognize and see the God in them? How does that affect how we might view that neighbor, that boss, that family member, that politician? How might it affect how we expect those, even those guilty of crimes, to be treated moving forward? How might that affect how we think about war, even war for good purposes? One last quick clarification. This is not a call for people to continue to suffer at the hand of abuse. 
Because sometimes when we talk about these things, it can be heard that way. Dr. King's call to nonviolence was not a call to passivity. It was not a call to not have boundaries. It was a call to change, but to do so in a way that doesn't use instruments of evil in the effort to find the good. So what does this mean for us, is the question. Next week, uh, I'm going to be interviewing as our, for our gathering um, Brother David Kramer. Dave is the pastor of Keller Park Church, a church I spent many years at that is dear to my heart. Uh, He's doing good work on the northwest side of South Bend. Uh, Dave has released a book on the Christian tradition of nonviolence. Um, And so I have a lot of tough questions to ask him because I just don't get it, right? I get the idea of it, and yet I wrestle with it, and sometimes I think I like it, and sometimes I think I hate it. Uh, So we're going to have some time to ask some good questions of Dave next week. But for now, we're going to have a time of practice, of contemplation and prayer. As the team leads us, the question is this. In your life, what difference does everyone an icon make? When it comes to those standing in your way, how might God be nudging you to work for the beloved community for all? South Bend City Church, may you go with the encouragement that there is a God who sees you and knows you and loves you just as you are and has included you in God's dreams. And may you go into our community and dream big dreams of goodness for yourself and for anyone who stands in your way. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great week.